0: Ezra chapter 1, we are on week 2 of a, of a series that we're calling the Rebuilders, looking at these guys that came out of exile and heard God calling them and stirring them to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the altar, to rebuild the walls, and uh, this week we're in Ezra. Now if you haven't been in Ezra for a while, if you find Psalms and head left, you'll, you'll get to Ezra soon enough. And uh, we're going to start Ezra chapter 1. We're not doing a verse by verse through Ezra. And if you look at chapter 2, you'll be thankful about that. Uh, We're going to just sort of pitch in here and there in Ezra and then in Nehemiah and see uh, what what it means to be a rebuilder. What were their priorities? What what did they do? What did they hear? Uh, Let's start Ezra 1 and verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Right, wee bit of background just so you know the scene because there's a lot of names there and a lot going on. We are at the end of the exile period in the Old Testament. Last week from Amos I hung this out as the theme sort of verse phrase for this whole series that we're going to just modely along over the summer. I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. I'm not going to go through the whole timeline again, but just to let you see where we are today, we are there. It's roughly about 536, 538 BC. The exile has ended and Cyrus, who is a Persian king, comes along attacks Babylon where God's people were being held captive in exile and after he has taken over Babylon he says to the Jews living there you can go home. That's where we're at at the start of the the book of Ezra today. Now Ezra himself uh, was a scribe and he was a priest So he operated, he he was trained and able to function as a priest offering sacrifices and as a scribe, he would have copied out the scriptures and also would have taught them. Ezra, you will not find in Ezra chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 or 6. He's not there. He's not even born. So Ezra only shows up a wee bit later in the book. He shows up in uh, 458 I think it is about 458 BC Ezra actually appears on the scene uh, and comes back with a second group of exiles he leads them back and he brings the law and teaches them so if Ezra wrote this book which he probably did the first six chapters are him compiling some history and putting it all down he doesn't actually appear until chapter seven um the actual sort of heroes then of the return, this first return are two dudes called Shesh Bazar and Zerubbabel who might actually be the same person because Babylonians like to change the names when Daniel and his mates were taken into exile at the start of it all, 70 years before this, their names were changed. And you read about Shesh Bazar and you read about Zerubbabel and some people think this might actually be the same guy just with, with two different names. Uh, But anyways, they, if it was they, were governors. Jeshua or Joshua was a priest. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets. These guys will be your hosts for the next week or two. And here's another wee pointer. Before we get into the text, we're about to dive in. If you hate the history bit, that's fine. It's nearly over. Um, When you're reading Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, it can be very confusing just what's going on in terms of time. Roughly the sequence is this, Ezra 1 to 6 happens in Jerusalem. Now even that, there's a messed up bit in the middle of that where Ezra puts something in completely out of sequence. But you would read Ezra 1 to 6, but before you get to Ezra 7 to 10, which also happens in Jerusalem, in between those, there's a long period of time, roughly what, maybe maybe 50 years? in between those two as you turn the page from Ezra 6 to Ezra 7 about 50 years and what happens in between is Esther the events that that are recorded in the book of Esther which took place back in the Persian Empire but affected God's people she and and her story actually falls in between Ezra 6 and 7 so if you're ever reading them that might help you and then at the end of all of that Nehemiah you can just close that door it'll be all right. Uh, Nehemiah Comes and rebuilds the walls. So that's that's what's going on in the background. Let's get into this text today and pull out a few things that will be good for us to think about in this theme, and just good to stir your heart. Ezra one one, read it already. First year of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord uh, moves on the heart of Cyrus. I want you to note straight away in any building, rebuilding. Renewal, restoration. God is the architect. The Jews in Babylon did not sit and decide, here, this would be a good thing to do. Let's go up to Jerusalem and rebuild all this stuff. It was not the decision of men or women. It was not the decision of leaders or kings, even King Cyrus. God is behind this. God is behind it. He's the architect of it all. He's the one putting all the pieces together in a wonderfully intricate way. And I don't know if you've ever been part of a sort of a religious project that was the idea of a man or of a woman, but wasn't architected by God. You know, it can be hard work. (laughs) We've done that a lot where we have, you know, from the dawn of time, what men try to do is build impressive things. And that's out there in the world and in business and in industry. And also in the church as well. We like to do stuff. And sometimes we do stuff so that we can be recognized. Back in Genesis 11, we had a bunch of people in a place called Babel or Babel, which was Babylon. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. They wanted to build. This instinct within them to build and to make, but it was only for their own glory. God wasn't in it. And there's a great verse that, that would have been written in around the time of, of exile somewhere. I don't know the exact date of it, but Psalm 127, one says, unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Mm-hmm. So tell you just straight off and, and put this back to me anytime I get wacky ideas, <laughs> if God isn't the architect of it, it's just going to be hard work, and it's going to leave people tired. you ever seen people in the church tired, burnt out, exhausted? You know, we're doing this, and we need all of you to be here at this time, and this time, and this time every week for the next three years, and people just get exhausted by it. If the Lord is not behind it, it will just be. The builders labor in vain. That just means it's all hard work, and it won't achieve anything. Labor in vain, work for nothing. God must be the architect, and and we must then be building things that God has planned. Not that we've planned, and we would ask God to come and help with. It doesn't work that way. I don't draw the plans and say, God, come and join on the building site and get this. It's the other way around. God, God does the plans, and we join him and build. The way we pray on Tuesday nights a lot, your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, we're coming and we want, we we usually pray right at the start. We want God to direct our praying. We want to be aligned with what his priorities are. Not just bringing, we do bring our needs and we do bring our requests, but we want our hearts to be beating in the rhythm of his heart. So that we're praying for the stuff that he wants to see happen on the earth. So God is the architect. That's the first thing. We're going to come back to that as we, as we close a wee bit later on, the fact that God's the architect. Still in Ezra 1, verse 1, God keeps his promises. Now that's really important to you because some of you maybe have been hanging for something that God promised a long time ago. I bet you it wasn't 70 years ago. But you may be sitting on something that was a year or five years ago and you're thinking, "Wow, this is a long wait. Maybe God won't keep his promise. God keeps his promises. And as we start this rebuilding project in Ezra 1, the very first verse, not only is God the architect, you're so good at that, thank you. Not only is God the architect, but he's doing it to fulfill his word. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. <clears throat> you have a look at the timeline again just to see where Jeremiah is. <clears throat> he prophesied before the exile that it was going to happen. Whenever it did happen, he remained in Jerusalem and continued to prophesy during the start of the exile and sent letters to the exiles <clears throat> in, in Babylon. Babylon. Jeremiah just, you always feel sorry for the dude. Whenever the Babylonians took the Jews into captivity, they took the ones that they deemed as valuable. Daniel was really intelligent and his buddies as well. They took sort of influencers, if that's the right word. And they took the academics and they took the gifted and talented people. And poor Jeremiah, the weeping prophet got left in Jerusalem. We don't want him. He He can stay there. And Jeremiah said that the the exile would last 70 years. You can read that in Jeremiah 29. I remember speaking on it not that long ago. And the point was not that it would be exactly 70 years to the day rather than 69 years or 71. The point was, this is going to last a lifetime. The point was, no one is going to really be coming back or very few people are going to come back at the end of this. There's some people who came back from exile in terms of the same people who went in, but most of them in that 70-year period obviously died. Virtually no one was left. But I want you to notice that God God keeps his promises. The whole thing is, you know, there's this word that God spoke in Jeremiah, and he spoke it in various other places as well. And in Daniel 9, Daniel, who is in exile, so Daniel on our timeline, he's in that exile period. He's the prophet in exile itself. And whenever he understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah that the desolation would last seventy years, he turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer, in petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. God keeps his promises. Our part in in the in the sort of bargain is is to know his promises and lay hold on him in prayer for them to come to pass, like Daniel did. The whole operation in Ezra 1 starts off in fulfillment of what God has said 70 years previously. And when you read Daniel 9, you'll find a guy living in exile who was reading Jeremiah one day and understood that the 70 years were almost over and he started to lay hold on God and plead with him in prayer. When I say God keeps his promises, it's not just a wee sort of rub on the back, there, there, it'll be okay. It is that, but it is a sort of pat on the back, get on with it. Pray into the promises of God. Lay hold on the things that he has said in his word, and maybe has even said to you personally the dreams, the aspirations that he's led on your heart. I find God can put something on my heart, and if it doesn't happen within a week, <laughs> You know, I start to fade. I start to flag very quickly. 70 years passed from this word being given to Jeremiah to Daniel finding it and laying hold on it in prayer. That's faithfulness. That's a guy who knows God, knows the character of God. All your promises, we just sang it. All your promises are yes and amen. He knows the character of God. And even though such a long time has passed, he lays hold on God in prayer. So, God is the architect. God keeps his promises. And still in Ezra 1 1, <laughs> you know, good job we're not going verse by verse, isn't it? It'll be here a long time. Um, in Ezra 1 1, not only is he keeping his promises and architecting the whole thing, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. God stirs the heart of a pagan king. Now, this guy, Cyrus, is interesting. He is one of the only people in your Bible who is named long before he's even born. About 150 years before he is born, 100 years, 150 years. This guy is mentioned by name by the prophet Isaiah. That is exceptionally rare. In fact, I find it hard to think of any other examples. By name, he's mentioned. I'm not going to read all these verses, but in Isaiah 44, this is where you get this. Now, let me just go back to the, this again, the timeline. Um, Isaiah is way back before the exile even began. Way back, long, long before it began. He prophesied about it, and he prophesied about the return, but he never saw it. Tradition says that Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king, killed Isaiah by sawing him in half. That's that's not recorded in the scriptures, but that's what tradition believes happened to Isaiah. So he's long before all of this. And he says in chapter 44, verse 24, this is what the Lord says, your redeemer who formed you in the womb. Jumping on a wee bit. He says in verse 26, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. The towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. I will restore them says to the watery deep be dry and I will dry up your streams he says of Cyrus he is my shepherd that's unreal that's 150 years probably before Cyrus and Isaiah doesn't just sort of speculate about it he gives the guy's name (laughs) which causes some people then to suggest that Isaiah wasn't actually written whenever we think it was written but causes me to suggest God is awesome and God showed Isaiah exactly what would happen and Isaiah wrote it down. God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. So this guy's mentioned and he's also mentioned Isaiah 45. The Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus, I will go before you for the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen. I summon you by name. I bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Cyrus was the king of Persia. History time again. Jews are in exile in Babylon. Cyrus, king of Persia, comes, conquers Babylon, takes over, becomes top dog, and sends the Jews home. Cyrus himself was not a nice guy. Here's the mistake we can sometimes make with a Cyrus figure. God uses this pagan king to achieve his purposes. Cyrus worshipped Marduk, who was a god of the Babylonians. Cyrus was not a nice man. But God just decided, I'm going to use you. You're going to bless my people. I'm going to stir up your heart to be favorable towards my people. You're going to send them back. You're going to resource them. But that does not mean that we then put Cyrus on a pedestal and say, how awesome is Cyrus? No, we put God on the pedestal and say, how awesome is God who can use anyone to achieve his purposes. Cyrus is not a nice guy. (laughs) Don't give him too much respect. But as Proverbs says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like a stream of water, he channels it toward all who please him. In other words, God directs the heart of even the king. And sometimes we see things happening and we see leaders doing things and we see politicians doing things and we see various people of influence using their power in various different ways. God can stir their hearts and he can move their hearts and he can use them to achieve his purposes. And anyone living at that time seeing Cyrus and the Persian Empire conquering Babylon probably would not have thought, oh, that's God behind all of that. But it was. God moved in Cyrus' life and he wove all the pieces together to put them in place when he needed him to set his people free. God stirs the pagan king. And I don't know if there are figures in your life that you really need God to stir. (laughs) Whether it's a, a, a boss or someone who is in a position of influence and you just need change. Can I give you a wee bit of hope? If God can can stir Cyrus, he can stir anyone to be favorable towards you or anyone else. Don't give up praying. God changes the hearts, not only of Christians, but also of pagans. And God can bring these strange people like Cyrus into his purpose, use them for a while, and then allow them to go again. And not only does God stir the pagan king, in verse 5, he stirs his own people. The family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build. We want to be rebuilders. Rebuilders must have the capacity to be stirred. This version says, everyone whose heart God had moved. Some other versions, translations will say, whose heart God had stirred. Basically means woke up. Someone whose heart had sort of fallen asleep and God woke them up to, to get active and to do something. Now, think about this again. 70 years. Most of the Jews living in Babylon had never been to Jerusalem the vast majority, for for any of those Jews in Babylon to have been in Jerusalem and to remember it, they would have had to be probably 80 years old or more. So, you know, these guys, you imagine yourself and you've had a lifetime and you've got a home and you've got a family and you've got a business that you started in Babylon because you listened to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 when he said, settle down, start businesses, plant gardens, build houses, get married, all of that stuff, you've done all of that. And you've, you've done it for a lifetime why would you move <laughs> seriously everything's you've got your house your family your neighbors your job you know you've got a small amount of freedom to worship your god you can't go to the temple obviously but why would you move you're comfortable you'll only move if god stirs you you'll only move if god stirs you and you'll probably find as you turn to your neighbors and say listen I feel God stirring me to go back to Jerusalem and to start helping out with this rebuild. You'll find your neighbors will say, what? Are you mad? You have not made? You have comfortable life and, and everything, your family around you and your business is doing well and you've got your house and you're well established and even the Babylonians respect you because you're, you're, you've, you've blessed their economy or whatever. Are you mad? You're going to leave all of that and you're going to go to a place where we've never been? we've only read about, we've only heard vague stories about from all the old guys, we've never actually been there, why would you do that? And and you will find a similar thing can happen in when God puts something on your heart and you want to rebuild and you want to do something new and you want to go somewhere that others have not been and you'll have people, well-meaning people around you that'll be like, are you mad? (laughs) Have you lost it? Everything you want, you have. Everything everybody wants, you have security and comfort, and and everything is there, and you're going to leave it and go off on this harebrained rebuilding project on the strength of something written by that wacky Jeremiah dude 70 years ago. They had to be stirred. And if God stirs you, and you will know this, and I know this, once God stirs you, you you don't be ignorant to people who come along and question what you're doing, but you're just like, I've been stirred. (laughs) God has awakened something in me, and I have to respond to it. But it has to, again, God's the architect. It has to be him that's doing it. It's got to be the work of God, because you would never move. You would never move. Put yourself in the position of those people. You just are not going to leave that life and go back to Jerusalem. Why would you? It's the stirring and the work of God in the heart of a person that causes them to want to rebuild. And one of the really important factors in this is the Word of God. There was a a song that they sang in Babylon, Psalm 137, by the Rivers of, you know. Yeah, yeah, don't start. In the middle of that Psalm, they say, if I forget you, Jerusalem... May my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. They sang these songs that reminded them of where they were from. 10 years later, 20 years later, 30, 40, 70 years later. They sang these songs that reminded them of their identity. And they they read these scriptures that reminded them of their identity. And it was in the scriptures that Daniel read about the 70 years and then in response turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer. Why do we make such a fuss over this book? Why do we give half of Sunday morning every week over to this book? Why do we encourage you to read and read and read and study this book? Why do we go to hard places like Ezra and Nehemiah? Because these are the things that teach us who we are and remind us who we are and shape our identity and form us. And the reason that you had some people in Babylon after 70 years with the capacity to be stirred by God was that they were people of the word. People of the word. People who had listened to Daniel. People who had sang these songs, they'd listened to Ezekiel as well, and the Word of God was important to them. And there, believe me, those are the ones who were stirred. Anyone who went into Babylon and just forgot God and thought, I'm just going to have to make a life for myself here and forget this whole Jerusalem thing, they stayed there. They didn't go back. But the ones that just kept on listening to the Word were the ones when the moment arrived and God spoke, their hearts responded. And if you, if I, if we want to be rebuilders, We have to have hearts that are saturated in the word of God so that when he says, no, we're like, yes. (laughs) But you won't have that capacity if your heart is not seeped in the scriptures, if your identity is not shaped by the truth of these books. So what if God stirred in your heart? You know, does he have your number? Have you carved out that relationship with him through his word that he is able to speak to you? All their neighbors then supported them. were nearly done. Give them gold and silver and goods and livestock and valuable gifts. It all sounds a lot like the Exodus and it's meant to. <laughs> You can play those things over in your head at yourselves as you want, but this whole picture of people coming out of one place and going back to the, to the land and all the stuff, that was, it's all Exodus stuff. It's meant to be. The next thing, verse 7 is the last verse, and then I'm going to go back to the architect theme to finish off. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. So these articles, the temple was full of nice stuff, really nice stuff. A lot of it was gold, or overlaid with gold, and um, God's people had carefully made all this. And Nebuchadnezzar, nasty pup that he was, stole it all and brought it to Babylon. You can read about it in Second Kings 25, uh, about how all these things were taken away. And it just looks like a, a list of stuff. It's like a wedding list, you know, It's is like plates and bowls, and jugs, and all these different things, but they're all made of gold, and Nebuchadnezzar took them all. And it must have been devastating for the people of Jerusalem to watch all this stuff being carted out of the temple and taken to Babylon, and they must have thought this is the most terrible thing that has ever happened. But, and I sort of struggled for a title here because I thought, right, God's an architect, and then I thought God stirs the pagan king, and God fulfills his promises, and all I could think of here is... God gets Marduk to look after his stuff. God loves to humiliate and mock his enemies. Marduk was the God of the Babylonians. And as the people watched all of God's stuff being carried out of the temple into Babylon, what happened when it got there was Nebuchadnezzar put it into the temple of Marduk, which is a way of saying, my God's bigger than your God. When he's not. And stupid Marduk looked after all of God's stuff for 70 years so that whenever god needed it back whenever he had done the work in the hearts of the people in exile they went into exile because of idolatry among other things they did not do idolatry again when they came back out <laughs> you read the old testament and you see god's people playing around with idolatry 70 years in babylon they come back out of all sorts of other problems with religion and legalism when jesus comes but idolatry is not an issue anymore he dealt with it. He basically he got it out of their hearts in that, in that exile. But for those 70 years while he was working on the hearts of his people, he'd all this stuff. He's like, what am I going to do with my stuff? I need someone to look after for me. I'll get that dumb God of the Babylonians to take care of it. He can put it in his house under lock and key. It'll all be in one place. It'll not be just going around backstreet markets in Babylon and getting sold to random punters who come in for the day. It's going to be safe and I'm going to be able to get it anytime I want. And then when he needs it, he just basically clicks his fingers and all the stuff's brought back out of Marduk's storage unit. God gets his enemies to look after his stuff. Does the same thing with the Philistines in 1 Samuel with the ark. He just loves mocking them. But you know what? What we do is we look at something like these things disappearing, being taken away, and we think that's terrible. Everything's over. And if you step back and zoom out and you see God at work, no, God is looking after his stuff. He's using the enemy again to achieve his purposes. We, we just sometimes in life, we look at stuff in such a short-term, narrow way. We say, that thing's absolutely awful. And inevitably, when we get to look back on it in future years, we're like, that was a very painful experience, but my God was doing great things. <laughs> he was up to stuff that I didn't understand at the time. And when all that gold and silver was taken away, God was up to stuff. He was making sure that it was looked after and easily found when he needed it. Let's finish off with God being the architect. A couple more minutes. I mentioned earlier that he was the architect who started the whole process and got it all going. And I just want to add one thing to it. He is the architect of hope. The architect of hope. I wanted to finish on this. Last week, we saw that Isaiah and Amos and others prophesied that the exile would happen. For example, in Amos... 527, I will send you into exile for a whole list of reasons that we don't need to go into again. But I want you to know that God, even in that moment, even when he is dealing with something in the hearts of his people, like idolatry, that is so deeply rooted that it takes 70 years for them to actually get rid of it. God is still the architect of hope. He never leaves his people. Now listen, if you've missed everything else and you can't draw the timeline without looking at it on a piece of paper when you get home, all that's okay. But don't miss this. God never, ever leaves people without hope. At the end of Amos, we have our verse. I will bring my people back from exile. I will send you into exile, but he won't leave it there. That is not the way God works. It is not the way Jesus works, and it should not be the way the church works. <laughs> I will send you into exile, but I will bring you back. There will be hope. Once I've achieved my purposes, there will be hope for a return. And, and, and in Isaiah as well, we'll not go to the verses for the sake of time. Isaiah prophesied the exile. Isaiah prophesied the return. He says, you're going to come back. You're going to rebuild. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be renewal. There is going to be change. He always gives hope. Jeremiah 13 prophesies the exile as well. Now we're going somewhere here. Stick with me. All Judah will be carried into exile. Carried completely away. That's the the negative bit. Like back there in Amos 5, I will send you into exile. There's a negative bit. And we don't ignore the negative bit, and we don't ignore the challenging, stingy stuff of life, but there's going to be hope as well. Friday night, we went to see this pup and his mates at the Odyssey, a few of us, and um, so that's Chris from Rent Collective. Um, Rent Collective, we we saw them when they were sort of playing wee small places, and now they've got all big and famous and conquered America, and some people then just don't think it's cool to like them anymore. I think they're class, and I think he's class. I really, I really love this guy. I love his passion. I love his stage presence. He knows how to put on a show. He knows how to worship. He knows how to talk to a crowd of people in a way that glorifies God. He's just a good spud, and he's from down the road, which is even better. Proud, proud of, of Northern Irish exports on this occasion. But one of the things he said on Friday night, he, he chats away in between the songs, which is quite pleasant. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things he said on Friday night was, we are known for what we are against. The church is known for what we stand against. We are against this and we are against that and we are against and we are opposed to. And all of the, you know, the church, if you are to ask the random sort of punter in the street who's never really gone to church, what what is the church? They'll probably say, well, the church is opposed to this group of people and this type of people and these people and those people and these practices. And th- that's what the church can be known for sometimes. We are known For what we are against, we need to be known for what we are for, was what he went on to say. Wouldn't it be great if you went out onto the street and and you said to somebody, what's the church? Oh, the church are great at looking after the poor. The church are great at giving people hope. The church helped to restore and rebuild people's lives. If we were known for what we were for instead of what we are against. You see, in Northern Ireland, I think we're really good at sending people into exile." We're good for what we are against. You're a sinner. Excuse me. You're a sinner. Anyone listening to that in the audio would have thought at that moment I was taken over by some sort of dark presence. (laughs) (laughs) Get the exorcist, you know. Um, Yeah, we're, we're good at sending people into exile. We're good at pointing out sin. We're good at saying that was wrong. You're wrong. Away you go. We're good at pushing people into exile away from the temple, away from the presence of God. We're good at that. The church can be wee bit hard and wee bit cold. But you know what? Jeremiah later on says, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back. Hope. God's the architect of hope. For I know, and here I love to use this verse in context, because so many people use it out of context. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Not only the sending into exile, God never, never sends his people into exile, never comes out with what is a challenging, difficult word without also bringing the hope, (laughs) bringing the hope. And we need to learn from this. There are times that, that exile, there are times that people sin, there are times that we get things wrong and that's not to be overlooked. But if you just say to somebody, you're a sinner, (laughs) you're wrong because of this or this or this, and you don't give them hope, you're not representing God and you're not representing Jesus and you're not behaving the way the church is to behave. No matter what has happened, God has a people whose hearts are saturated with idolatry and it's going to take 70 years to sort it out. He still gives them hope. He still gives them hope. And if we challenge people in a way that sends them off without hope, we're, living, we're not living after the cross, put it that way. We're not living in the New Testament at all. Not that that's just a New Testament thing, but Jesus is the one who ultimately ended the exile and ultimately brought people back into the presence of God. And if we drive them away from the presence of God by condemning them and don't give hope, what do we do? <laughs> Whose work are we doing? Whose witnesses are we? Not Jesus. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and leave your life of sin. Okay, that's the, that's the sort of stingy bit. That's like when Jeremiah says you're going to go into exile or Amos says you're going to go into exile. That's the, the challenging bit, the real challenge. You must change. But the hope is there as well. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you, Jesus declared. God is the architect of hope. And we must, I think Linda would probably say one of the most important, if not the most important thing in counselling people is to give them hope. (laughs) Give them hope and give them a God who has plans and a future for them. Don't just give them a trite little verse to cheer them up. Give them hope. God can restore and can rebuild. Let's pray and then we'll worship.